Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Veronica Vasica is synonymous with Minimal Wave, the label she started in 2005 to release overlooked DIY synth records from the 70s and 80s. Its musical remit soon became a kind of genre in its own right. Combining her digging skills with a sharp eye for photography and design, she single-handedly turned Minimal Wave into one of the most visually and sonically appealing labels out there, with her tireless archival work shining a light onto a generation of obscure bands and producers. Vasica runs another label, City Tracks, which she uses to release music that doesn't fall into the Minimal Wave sphere. Increasingly, she's become in demand as a DJ across Europe and the US, and will soon be releasing music of her own via Regis's Downwards label. In a stop through our London office, Vasica spoke to Aaron Cooltate about all of this and more. I wanted to start by talking about your upbringing in New York in the, the late 80s and early 90s. Um, what kind of music were you exposed to growing up in the city? Um, I was exposed to a whole range of music, everything from new wave to dance hall to classic rock. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Um, hardcore, punk. So in those teenage years growing up in New York, were you going out to clubs, experiencing the, the city's club culture? Yeah, I was. I was actually sneaking out of the house to go to clubs when I was started at fifteen, and I was going to places like the Limelight. This was before it closed down, and a club called the Pyramid, and a party called Ward Six, and they would play. I mean, all kinds of great industrial music and what they called gothic music and synth pop. And during that time, I also, I got to see a lot of live bands like Einster's and Neubauten. That was highly influential on the way, my view of music. And I, I think that seeing, and then I saw Front 242, Nitzreb, I went to Nitzreb record signing when I was 16, I'd miss their show, but they're doing a signing. And I mean, I think seeing these bands and meeting these people was that experience expanded my musical horizons and had a lot of, I mean, now when I look back on it, it, it had a huge influence on the label. When you were going to these, these gigs, at, you know, age 15, 16, were there many other young people there? What kind of venues were they taking, taking place at? Most of the people were 18 and over or had a fake ID that I got on 42nd Street. <laughs> and I had gone there after school one day to get this ID so that I could go to these clubs. But yeah, m mostly it was between 18 and 22 people that were there. I mean, there are also older people there now that I think of it. And you mentioned Limelight as well. Um, obviously one of 
New York's most revered clubs from that sort of era. Who can you remember who was actually DJing on the on the nights that you uh, managed to sneak in? I remember Dave Kendall was DJing in the chapel, just like in the back room, and he was also he was on um, MTV 120 Minutes. So we would watch him in 120 minutes doing the indie alternative, whatever, two hours of indie music. I mean, this was like music that was currently coming out of the UK. That's what was being played. And then, yeah, I mean, I went to see Pop Will Eat Itself when I was 15, which is very random. They played in New York. And then who else was DJing? Reese. And there were so, I mean, there were just so many DJ, different DJs. It was hard to keep up with the names. And this point you were, were you, you were living in New York, like on Manhattan Island or? Yeah, I was living in New York in the city. My parents lived in a residential neighborhood that was away from all the stuff that was interesting to me, <laughs> all the cool stuff. So yeah, I would take the subway downtown and just stay out all night and go dancing. And then I would go to school the next day. And I mean, I got all kinds of comments at school, like girls asking me, so how long does it take you to lace up those boots every morning? Because I was wearing like 20 eye dark marks. How long does it take you to put that eye makeup on every day? It's just like, (laughs) it's got a lot of... uh, but I really didn't care at all. I didn't care at all. I mean, I spent more time then getting ready than I do now. <laughs> so I guess even from those, you know, those early school days, you've always identified yourself as separate from the pack, I guess. Definitely. Definitely. And you worked at a record store while you were still in high school. Was, is that right? Yeah, I was in high school and I was working at um, HMV, which was, it was like the only HMV that we had. I know it was a chain over here. And it was three blocks from high school. So after school, I'd go there and I worked there. And that was when I discovered a lot of more underground stuff. And I guess you must have been sort of finding some pretty weird records while you were working at that record shop. What were the kind of bands or producers that stood out from an an early age? Well, while I was there, I mean, as far as that shop, there wasn't a lot. There was some stuff there. But I think what started before that was going out to clubs and then finding record shops downtown. So HMV was the closest thing to, you know, where I lived that I could actually, it was a store where I could work. But um, down the street, there was a Tower Records annex, which is like basically that anything that wouldn't sell at the Tower Records. So they had all these mute cutouts and they had, I mean, that's where I first found Throbbing Gristle releases and uh, Fad Gadget, Can, and I Start Counting, which is the band from the UK. Yeah, there was a ton of stuff, DAF, D-A-F, and mostly just stuff that I bought because I liked the covers and they were all, everything was really cheap. And at what point did this start becoming more of an obsession, like digging deeper and deeper into um, this kind of left field electronic music? I mean, I think it started mainly with Robin Gristle and everything that was around Robin Gristle and learning about industrial records. 
and just wanting to know more about it. And um, yeah, going to record shops downtown and finding stuff there. That was when it started. I think a lot of it also had to do with the, listening to the radio when I was a teenager and making mixtapes off the radio. There's a radio station out of Long Island that we could get in Manhattan. And they were playing a lot of just underground indie. It was called alternative music. So that was like the umbrella term. But I was making a lot of mixtapes from that. And that was around when I was 14. So I'd say that was the beginning of the, I mean, I had no idea what was out there, but that was the introduction to that world of music. So a couple of years before you started Minimal Wave, uh, you were instrumental in in starting East Village Radio. Um, can you tell me a bit how that came to pass? It all happened pretty accidentally, actually. I was working for the restaurant owner that uh, is the primary owner of East Village Radio. And I was assisting him and I was actually sewing curtains for the restaurant and just doing like odd jobs. And we were talking about this radio thing because there was another guy who was working there too. And he had done free radio, Austin, Texas. And Frank himself had, was a college radio DJ. So he had this dream of starting a radio station. All of us um, came together. There are four of us that came together and just decided, well, let's do this. We have extra space. He was expanding the restaurant and decided to build a storefront station that adjoined the restaurant. So it was at that point that I started doing a show called Minimal Electronic Plus which is now called Minimal Wave. And it was really exciting because I could just play, I mean, anything that I wanted to, just really weird. So I guess all, all these early discoveries you were having, um, you were then able to go and showcase on the radio. I guess the two, the two things go hand in hand. Yeah. And were you, what kind of response were you getting in those, those early days? The response was was great. It was surprising. Um, I was getting phone calls from people driving over the Williamsburg Bridge and just like saying, wow, this, this is an amazing song and I'm tuned in right now, just big support. And you know, just, it was interesting. It was really interesting um, because a lot of this music was, it seemed to like reach people easily. Whereas before that I thought, well, this is, some of this stuff is just such weird, you know, I was playing like a lot of German wave stuff, cassette recordings that were just odd, but people responded to them. So at this point, were you playing music by artists that would end up on the label? Yeah, I had started to. And where were you finding those those records or tapes? Well, Oppenheimer Analysis um, was one of them and... I was going to a lot of record fairs and um, record shops in upstate New York that had very random bins, like dollar bins of those magazines, like Vinyl Magazine, a Dutch music magazine from the 80s that had flexies in every issue. And just finding these things in random places, I mean, in upstate New York of all places. And then they had... Um, 
just cassettes that I don't know how they made it over to the U.S., but just like compilation tapes from France and Germany. So that was a starting point. And then, I mean, I got a lot more serious and started going to record fairs. And at this point, was it just a bit of a collector's impulse or, or were you thinking this this music needs to see a wider release? Like at what stage did you, did you start thinking I, I could actually start a label by giving this these tapes a proper vinyl issue? I think it was definitely the point when uh, I was playing Oppenheimer Analysis out at a, because I was doing some club nights as well, bar nights. And the response was just, I mean, we were in a bar that didn't have a dance floor and people were dancing. So it's just like, okay, this needs to be out. And people came up and they were like, what record is this? And I was like, this is not a record. This is like a song from tape burned onto CD. And I mean, that was the big turning point. It was There wasn't any uh, preconceived idea of starting a label. It was very spontaneous. I mean, literally overnight. You mentioned Oppenheimer analysis, and I, I wanted to ask you about that first record that kicked off the label in 2005. There's a pretty fascinating story behind it, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. There's a, Well, they met at a science fiction convention in Brighton in, uh, I think, 1978 or 79. And Andy is and was at the time a nuclear weapons consultant, expert. And Martin was a doctor, and they both had this love of electronic music and, I mean, David Bowie to start with. And when Martin met Andy, he, I mean, immediately he thought that Andy looked like Ziggy Stardust. And that's what, that's what prompted him to go up to him and start a conversation. Yeah, I mean, it was really fascinating because at that time, Andy had also done these um, paintings of J.R. Oppenheimer, and they were online. And that was pretty much, aside from his, some quotes on the BBC of him in regards to his nuclear weapons specialist specialty, there were also these paintings online, and that was it. And there was nothing about the music. So when I found him, I was just wondering, I was like, is this the same person? How did you find him out of interest? Well, I wrote to him, I actually wrote him a letter. I typed out a letter and I sent it to him, to his office. It was just the question of, you know, was this you in this band Oppenheimer analysis? Are you the same person? So... Yeah, it turned out that it was him, and they were really excited to find that I had discovered their music and I was playing on the radio. So they started transferring all their tapes, digitizing all the tapes and sending them over. I get the feeling that the stories behind these these records and the process of, of finding the and unearthing the music is is pretty much as exciting as the music itself. Is that is that what sort of spurs you and inspires you? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I guess one question I, I wanted to ask you was about the actual name Minimal Wave. So you, you've, you've put out the, the first record from Oppenheimer Analysis and the label was born. 
just tracing it back a bit, how did you decide to call it Minimal Wave? Because you've, you've basically not only came up with a name for your label, but a name for a, for a genre. I actually um, registered the name minimalwave.org long before, I think it was uh, in 2003 or four. And I wanted to build an archive of this type of music. So basically um, have posters and sound clips and just information, biographical information about these bands. And so Minimal Wave really came from my two loves at the time, which were minimal, what people called Minimal Synth and Cold Wave. <laughs> yeah, it was it was spontaneous. And I, I guess the one of the first evolutions of the label was to to add a sub-label, City Tracks, where you, I guess you could focus on putting out stuff that just didn't fit under the, the Minimal Wave bannering, including new music. How did you come to that decision? Was that just a, a natural evolution for you? Um, well, it started with uh, reissuing a Chicago house record, Z Factor, the Dance Party album, which was a record that I was really, really obsessed with and wanted to buy, but it was, it was like $500 on eBay. So I decided to get in touch with Jesse Saunders and ask him about licensing it to reissue it. And so City Tracks was just born out of the necessity to have that outlet for music that wasn't minimal wave. And then as it evolved, I felt like it became more focused on, and now I think it's really focused on artists that may be influenced by minimal wave and they are um, bringing that to their music, current artists. It feels like there's also been a, maybe a meeting of some of the stuff you've been reissuing and some of the newer records in terms of the, the techno side of things. Is that been maybe where your your own tastes have kind of developed in in recent times? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's pretty much how I see the label, because there's music that I released in say 2006 that I don't think I would release now. So it just has to do with the natural evolution that, like, I personally am going through with music. Have you found over time that the the kind of people buying your records has changed that you've noticed? Yeah, I think initially it was it was somewhat insular and it was it was about the collectors and really the people that I in the beginning was I mean I felt like I was a part of that group. And now um I think it's just outgrown that and it's gone way beyond just you know that subculture of collectors. And there are a lot of young people that are interested in minimal wave, which is especially exciting. I did want to touch on you mentioned there the sort of subculture of of collectors. It's, it seems like minimal wave has built this kind of community, be it an, an online one through you know on the website you've got you've got a forum and there's a fairly active Facebook page. How have you sort of made steps to to build that community, or is it something that's just kind of sprung up around the label? Um, I think it's just sprung up around the label, but like I said about the initial um, impetus to start the label, it was actually uh, an online database and archive, and it was like it was also member based, so people could interact and you know talk about whatever their record collections, and so from that point, I mean there was a billboard, a um, message board 
and a place where people could announce their parties or announce their that they were selling records. And so I think it just grew from that, just expanded on that. And has that little community been a source for you to, to discover new music that may eventually come out on the label? Or is that sort of the primary way you, you find these, these tapes still by traveling around to, to record fairs? Well, I actually haven't been doing much record fair traveling. And I found that after a certain point, um, record stores just became more about online. I mean, it was like you couldn't go into a record store without the shop owner knowing exactly what he had. So the excitement of stumbling across something that was rare, just, I mean, I think that whole experience is gone. At what point do you think that that stopped for you um, where you could stop going, say, to upstate New York and just digging through these these kind of amazing obscure tapes? Well, I will. I mean, I'll always have some hope in the back of my mind that that still exists. But as far as actively uh, pursuing that, I think it's been about four or five years. Okay. So so in more recent times, what have how, how do you find new music? This is a lot of the music is, is music that I had actually found 10 years prior. And um, I mean, there's still material that I have that hasn't been released. And so it was during that period where I was so actively collecting that I gathered all this material. And then what happens now is that people will reach out to me about reissuing things or telling me about their unreleased tracks. So it's changed a bit. And then I'll reach out to bands that I didn't think were accessible, like Blancmange, for example, about the first, you know, their first release. And because that's, to me, that's a, that was a really important, that has an important place in music. Whereas before it was more about what really what truly hadn't surfaced yet. And now I think it's about bringing things to light that hadn't had enough exposure during their time. Like for example, Blancmange, they, you know, they're not known for that. Irene and Mavis, 10 inch, well seven, it was came out as a seven inch, but they were never known for that. And I I mean, that's a really important uh, piece of their musical history. I've read in interviews, um, you've been described as a vinyl archaeologist. Is that something that you agree with? Do you feel like a a vinyl archaeologist? Yeah, I do feel like a vinyl archaeologist, but I think it's not um, solely about the vinyl. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more expands to all kinds of audio, cassettes and VHS. And I guess I wanted to ask you about the the tapes compilations that you've put out. I guess they felt like markers in the sand for for the label and pretty good for people who maybe are intrigued by what Minimal Wave's all about but aren't maybe prepared to go out and buy a, a, like an artist album or LP. Are you planning to do any more editions of these in the, in the future? Well, we haven't decided yet, but we're definitely going to be doing – Compilations. We're going to keep going with releasing compilations. 
So, I mean, aside from the minimal wave tapes, there were there were other compilations on minimal wave, like the lost tapes, the found tapes, the hidden tapes. But definitely having Stones Thrown Board brought that those songs to a wider audience. And how did that relationship with with Stones Throw begin? It started because Peanut Butter Wolf was a he became a fan of the label. And one day he saw some of the releases on the wall of other music store in New York. And he just liked how they looked. So it went from there. I guess he's one of many people who who likes the way that uh, the Minimal Wave records look. And I, I wanted to ask you about the the visual element to the label. Um, obviously, you have a background in the arts and photography. Can you Can you tell me where that began? Well, it started when I was 15 and I was shooting black and white photographs. And then I became really serious about it and decided I wanted to go to school for photography. So I ended up doing that. Um, My parents were completely opposed to the idea because I was really good in math and science and they wanted me to do something that was useful. But I, yeah, I mean, I had a strong vision about what I wanted to do. So I ended up studying photography. I became really interested in graphic design. I didn't, I never took any classes for graphic design, but I just started making things and working on two dimensional projects. And then when I started the label, it was like a dream come true because I could apply my photography and design skills to the design of these album covers. And you said even from from a fairly young age, you had a had a strong vision. What was that vision? At that point, I was, I mean, it was mostly aesthetic, but I was influenced by by writers like William Burroughs and music like Throbbing Gristle and movements like Situationism. And so I was interested in surrealism and I mean, I really, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew what I liked. So I was taking a lot of portraits, cutting up photographs and making collages. And yeah, the um, one of the compilations, well, actually that Oppenheimer analysis record, the photograph is from the DC Metro. And that was the day that I met Andy Oppenheimer. I took that photograph in the DC metros. I think it was like an hour before I met him. The Lost Tapes, which is the first compilation, was the covers, a photograph of a friend of mine that I took when I was 16. It's a photo I took in my bedroom. I painted my walls black. And that was the backdrop that I wanted for my photograph. So <laughs> it was like perfect. How much time and and th- sort of energies you invest in when you've got, say, an LP ready to put out in terms of the visual element of, of that. It seems like it's There's a, a lot painstaking of time. process. There's a lot of time put into it. I mean, sometimes the I mean, sometimes the artists get annoyed because they're waiting and they're wondering, you know, are you really working on this? And so they can get frustrated, even though they've waited 30 years for the music to be released. <laughs> they still get 
frustrated when it's an extra three or four months. But um, yeah, it's, it is a lot of time. I just, I think it's really important. I think that visual element is so important. I mean, it's what initially drew me to all the music that I fell in love with. So it's, you know, it has this personal side to it. And how do you go about deciding what image and also kind of what color scheme you're going to use on a sleeve and how that relates to the the music contained within? A lot of times it has to do with just listening to the music and visualizing what would work with the music. Yeah, it's intuitive really. These days Minimal Wave seems to be a really slick operation I mean, super organized. Whenever a, a release is announced, it goes up on the website. There's a really interesting write-up, a lot of background, the, the artwork's there, sound clips, track lists. It's all really, really nice and well thought out. Do you feel like things are sort of operating at that level now? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Did, did it feel like it was, it's been hard work to get there or have you always been very, very organized in what you do? I think I've always been pretty organized, but... I wasn't aware of um, the record plants and how and timing and how a lot of times things can be late, and that's something that just comes over over time through the experience of having the label. That now I can know for sure. Okay, well, if they're saying it's going to be done at this point, well, I'll, I'll add them. I'll add an extra two weeks to that date, and then, yeah. Your dedication to doing full color sleeves and nice heavyweight vinyl, you know, that's obviously elevates Minimal Wave to the realm of a boutique label or whatever you want to call it. Is that something that brings its own pressures? Because I guess financially, that must be quite a burden at times. So every record you put out is a beautiful record. It is. I mean, it's it's a lot more expensive because you're dealing with heavier weight sleeves heavier weight inner sleeves heavy vinyl and then the shipping costs for the whole shipment of a thousand records ends up costing more because it's all heavy I mean it it can get tough but luckily I have a really good relationship with the plant and a lot of times I can figure out I can gain enough sales through pre-orders so that I don't have to pay everything all at once before I even have the records. So there's um, there's a system in place now that that works really well. And you're currently on a in the midst of a brief European tour. And I noticed this weekend you're playing in Paris with Philippe Laurent and in Etrenne and Vale mm-hmm. um, to be playing alongside two of the artists whose careers you've you've kind of helped give a real shot in the arm. That must be a pretty amazing feeling. Yeah, I'm very proud of being able to do this gig with them. Um, I got to play with Inédor Nanvale with Laurent Pro last November in Los Angeles for a Mount Analog party, and it was his first U.S. live show. And he was—he really impressed me. He was really amazing. So it's exciting. I mean, it's these are the best gigs to have to be able to play alongside my artists. Um, I haven't seen Philippe Laurent live yet. I've met him a few times in Paris, but this will be my first time seeing him live. I guess it shows it shows the power of, of the label where basically putting something out 
can give a band or an artist a, a second wind really in terms of their career and, you know, even get them back touring again or releasing new music. Is, is that something that you're particularly proud of? And, and does that happen regularly? Yeah, I'm really proud of that, actually. Um, I'm just happy that the artists can succeed in a way that maybe they hadn't back in the day when they made that music. And a lot of times they go back to the recording studio and they make new tracks. Like in Adrian Unveil, he's now making a ton of new music that's gonna that's being released on different labels. And now I'm really happy that he can do that, that he's a, he has an outlet that he didn't have before. And he he deserves it. I mean, he worked on it for years and years and years. Yeah, there are a lot of bands that, I mean, there's a band from Belgium that recently did their first live show reunion, I think like 30 years later, called Pas de Deux. And the response was was great. That was a, a really fantastic sleeve, the, the album that you put out um oh thanks so and so with pas de deux uh, is that something that you'll go and sort of dj when they perform live is there any plans to do anything like that or we've talked about it but at this point our dates hadn't coincided but it may happen is there kind of the the option to do like a, a full minimal wave tour is that being something that you would you would be be up for or i i, I guess i would love to do that i would love to do that I mean, I think what would be really interesting is combining the some of the new artists and city tracks and some of the older artists and minimal wave and doing a night like that, like in Adrian Vale for the reductions and I, who's based in Berlin, dusting. He started playing live again a few years ago and his live shows have gone over really well. I mean, it's tough. Sometimes these artists make a comeback and it doesn't really work. So in the case that it does work and it's successful and they have, you know, an expanding fan base, I think it makes, it would make a lot of sense to do a full minimal wave night tour. And in what other ways can you see the label expanding or evolving in, in the years to come? Well, I think that now, since City Tracks is such a focus, I think that's where the expansion reaches to. I think it's about bringing new artists, you know, younger artists, in and releasing new music, like current music. So, can you see the the output of Minimal Wave slowing in the future? I don't think it's going to be slowing, but I'm not sure how far it can go. I mean, a few years ago, I was in other music talking to someone who worked there, and we were laughing because I said, well, he's like, what do you think you're going to be doing in 15 years? And I said, well, I'm not going to be releasing music from the 80s in like 20 years from now. So, <laughs> I mean, just that concept is a little bit, I don't know. So do you it's a see, little bit boring. Well, did you see it as having a, an end point? I guess there's only so many there's only so many tapes hidden away out there from the 70s and 80s that you can unearth. Well, I I mean I'm finding it pretty unlimited. I just there cuz there's new material that I discover constantly. But this possibly has to do with my interests. My interests 
maybe are gearing more towards new artists who are in in a lot of these cases they're influenced by minimal way records and they're i mean they're not acting they're not retro bands they're not trying to be like an old synth pop band from 1984 they're doing their own thing but they're informed and it's it's really interesting yeah and in terms of the the artists that you've been working with on city tracks um i guess the ani record that you mentioned briefly from from doug lee has had a fairly big impact this year how did that record come to be released and is it going to be part of a series or, or what else What else have you got in store with Doug? Yeah, we have a few other releases of Doug's coming up. That was especially interesting because he hadn't listened to EBM and he hadn't, I was playing him all this weird electronic music from the 80s and playing him a lot of EBM and this was around the time when he would go back to the studio and, and then the next day he would just send me like clips of what he did. And I mean, that was when I first saw this direct relation to, I mean, he wasn't someone that, I mean, he comes from a disco, more of a disco background. So he, was, he wasn't one of these EBM collectors or interested really in industrial music or knowledgeable about any of the history around that so I really liked that he came from this naive place and he heard this music and he was he just was influenced with his immediate you know guttural reaction went into the studio and came out with this craziness you know I guess that record was a a very much a dance floor focused release is that something that you can you can see the the label sort of or yourself sort of focusing more on is is dance floor 12 inches as opposed to to full albums not necessarily but yeah there will be there certainly will be a bunch of 12 inches like dj friendly 12 inches i think that mostly has to do with the fact that i'm playing a lot out these days and i'm just thinking of what what works in my sets (laughs) and yeah that ni record works really well um, there's a new further reductions track that is going to be coming out as a 12-inch as well later in the year that I've been playing out a lot. So it just happens that um, some of those will be City Tracks releases. But it won't – I mean, City Tracks is – it's also about full-length albums and just other stuff. Like that other band that I released, Bruta Non Calculant from France. I mean, that's it's the most mellow record ever. So, Well, well that's, um, yeah, I guess yes, City Tracks sound-wise hasn't been as, as focused as Minimal Wave, and I guess that's maybe yeah. been a, a good thing for you to be able to explore the different sort of areas of your, your musical interests. It does feel like as well as quite a few New York friends of yours that you, you're putting out music from, um, generally, I guess a lot of the music that you've released has come from these scenes in France, Belgium, Italy, the UK. Yeah. Is that something that you, you see yourself continue doing or are you noticing or sort of digging up other little scenes from, from other places around the world? A little bit of both. I was recently approached by an industrial band from the early 80s in Spain and they, I mean, there's, yeah, they're artists that I definitely want to release. So it's, 
more about the music coming first. But another thing that's coming up is the Richard H. Kirk 12-inch that we're doing of some old tracks, um, four songs. So that's really exciting. I mean, Richard's obviously a legend in sort of in as far as his own history. How did that sort of come come to be? How did you get in touch with him or? Yeah, I um, I initially got in touch with Mute about this one track in particular, Never Never Lose Your Shadow. Love that track, and I play. I've been playing it for a while, and that was another instance where people would ask me, what record is this? Can I get this on vinyl? And so then I was like, okay, this needs to be out because it's so great. It sounds like quite a, a significant inspirational part of the label comes from your DJ sets and the, the response yeah. to tracks that you, you play. How are you finding, is that still the case? People come up to you and ask you about records and how much does that still feed into to what you decide to release? Yeah, I mean, it's more of a factor now more than ever because I've been playing a lot more recently. So a lot of times I'll try out new tracks that I love. And I mean, just seeing the audience, like seeing that direct response is really important. And are you playing in New York regularly or is, is at the moment is the sort of the East Village radio slot your your main sort of weekend activity there? Yeah, it's mainly East Village radio. And then on occasion I'll do gigs in New York, but I'm, I think I'm just more picky now than I used to be. But I really loved recently playing at Output because the sound there is great. Was that a, a show with Silent Servant or was that? Yeah, that was with Silent Servant. You're putting out um, a Sandra Electronics record later yeah. this year? And we're doing it. Um, so Regis and Silent Servant. And I guess Silent Servant and Regis are both examples of of people who embrace techno but also industrial and new wave music. So I guess that seems like a fairly natural um, collaboration. Yeah, I mean, it's been an amazing collaboration between the three of us. And, yeah, with Sandra Electronics, I mean, we did one seven-inch Sandra Plays Electronics, which was just Carl last March. And now coming up we have these tracks that Juan and Carl did together. And so it's a six-song EP. And, yeah, I love working with both of them. It's been it's been really fun. I actually I read an interview recently that you mentioned that some of your own productions will be seeing a release on, on Downwards. Is, is that right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so I guess I'd, I'd like to know how, how long have you been been making music? And um, Oh, I mean, I, I had my first four-track recorder when I was 18. So I wouldn't call what I was making music, but I was making some kind of noise. I had a tape recorder that I would just, I would record everything through this tape recorder. Just, everything and anything. And then I was playing it through this bass guitar. I was playing the tape recorder through the pickups of the bass guitar. So it was just, it's hard to explain what it was like, but that's not what you're going to hear coming out. But that was the beginning of when I started recording. So then over the years, I it was just something I did almost as a diary. I was recording regularly until probably until a year after I started the label or two years after the label took over. So once you you started Minimal Wave, did that put an end to your productions or your experimentation with your own music or have you managed to pick that up again more recently? 
when I have time, I work on it and I I do recordings, but it's not as not as academically as 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 I was doing it before because before I was just like, okay, every Sunday, every Sunday I have to do this, and then I would just record something. And now it's just it's about finding the time to do it. But the recordings that will come out were made between 99 and around 2003. I guess as someone who seems like a total perfectionist in terms of the, the way you run the, your labels, how long did it get to, to have these tracks, you know, sort of in, in the works before you were happy to, to let them be released? I'm not, to me, they're unfinished tracks. But Carl heard them and, I mean, he heard them from the other room and he was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, this is old stuff of mine. And he was like, this sounds like it was made now. I said, no, this is from 1999. He was like, well, can we put it out? Because this needs to be out right now. I was like, okay. So, I mean, for me, they don't, they're never going to be finished, but I'm finally going to just let them go. Is that a, is that, time. Is that a big decision for you? Like, why had you not uh, even considered releasing them for for 10 years? Well, I never really played them for anyone and I wasn't going to release them myself. There's something odd about writing about myself and saying, listen to this incredible release coming out, rare recordings from 1999. She recorded them in her bedroom. <laughs> you know, like, what am I going to say? I can easily write about other people because... I, I mean, I'm always idealizing what other people are doing, so it's it's fun to write about them, especially as a European artist in the middle of nowhere, like doing these home recordings. But as far as my own stuff, yeah, I think I need someone else to handle that. <laughs> yeah. And what kind of setup did you have? Were these recordings just made in, in your bedroom or? I, at the time, I had Pro Tools and an M-Box, which was like, two audios, two audio tracks going in. But I had a mixer. Um, I had like a 16-channel mixer. And so I had drum machine, an 808, SH-101, SH-9. I can go on a Pro 1. I can go on. It's going to get boring. Well, I, I, I um, guess I know you've said this This is pure agony, but how would you describe those those recordings to someone who who, ha- who hasn't heard them? They are, I don't, I really don't know. I mean, this one track reminded me a little bit of the Doppler effect side project, Zircolo. It's this one track that I did. But I would say atmospheric, industrial, maybe slightly danceable, but not, I mean, not synth pop, definitely not synth pop, dark, electronic, yeah. And will there ever be a day when a Veronica Vesica release comes out on City Tracks? Or- possibly, possibly. I mean, I'm all for doing that, but to me it means taking some time off to work on that. And right now I'm having a lot more fun releasing other people's music. So, Yeah, it's it, and it's interesting you say that. Um, I guess Ron Morelli over at Lies is... It, Got a similar kind of story. He's been he was so focused on, you know, putting out other people's records, and when he's done his own stuff, general with a couple of exceptions, it's been on other labels like Hospital. Yeah. So I guess it's a 
a well-trodden path in that respect. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just wanted to ask you, what, what else have you got in, in store for the year ahead? Well, I mentioned that Richard H. Kirk. Another thing that's coming up before that is Soma Holiday, which is a French, Franco-American duo that recorded in New York in the early 80s. And their record was produced by Jay Burnett, who was Arthur Baker's protege. And that's something that you can hear in the production. And then we have that Sandra Electronics record that you mentioned, a Sandra Electronics tape, which hasn't been announced, but we can announce it now. It'll come out around the same time as the record. And that is uh, live sessions and early recordings that were, some of them came out on Downwards already as uh, under White Savage Dance as Carl O'Connor's solo project. And then we have a band from Switzerland called Geyer's Connection that recorded this album when they were 16 and it's very well produced. And that's one of these records I got long ago. It's like one of these minimal synth, highly collectible records. And that's been on the table for a while, but I just, we hadn't been ready to do it. So what kind of uh, process goes into, you know, it sounds like you've got a, quite a few tapes or recordings that you, you've sit on, you've been sitting on for a few years. How do you decide that, all right, this is the time, this is the right time to release this particular artist? I think a lot of it has to do with what is happening musically right now and what I think makes sense to put out. Like, for example, Sympathy Nervous, that was a band from Japan. And I put out a collection of his music from 1979 called Automaticism, and the timing just seemed so perfect when I put that out. And yeah, it sold out. People loved it. It just just fit really well into what was happening during that time. 